scripture um, for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry. <laughs> oh, come on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in case you thought we already handled all the passages in 1 Corinthians that are a bit curly, uh, here we are. So once again, there's a multitude of, of, of issues to consider when it comes to correctly interpreting and understanding a passage like this. Um, yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, there's, there's, there's all sorts of things. Oh, what, what, is all this, what does all this mean? Um, there's also, if that's not, not enough, a, pl a plethora of opinions and studies and theories about what parts of it mean. Um, and um, maybe you're giggling away at the, um, the long hair thing and the, the, the whoever you know who might have long or short hair or whatever. Um, but uh, on a more serious note, if your initial response is, is this just seems off, you know, that how can this possibly be helpful? Remember, there's a vast cultural gap uh, between that world 2,000 years ago in the Corinthian world and, and our and our world, our culture today, and yet the human heart is the same. And so what is this passage saying about that? Um, I, I, 
did my research as best I could this week and read up and tried to understand some of the background and things and what, what those who are much smarter than me say about this passage. And, um, and there were a few things that really stood out to me that I, I think are really, really worth, worth hearing. Um, and, and again, I'll try, and, I'll try and get to the crux of it quickly, um, not to in any way dis- diminish or, or dismiss the, the issues and considerations worth wrestling with about men and women and all of that, but to help us hear the heart of God uh, in, in this for all of us. So uh, let me pray and then we'll, um, we'll jump into it. Father, uh, I just thank you again for your word this morning. And as we, uh, as we sit with what we've just read and what we've just heard, and consider what your, your, um, your heart for us in this might be, uh, that you would open our minds and, and allow us to hear clearly what you have to say to us, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you um, that the word um, is interesting and intriguing and something we don't just, um, we don't just read it and then go, oh, that's, that's great, and then put it aside, but have to, to wrestle and meditate and, and, and get stuck into it. And I pray you'd help us to do that today, that we may hear your personal word for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So rem- remembering that this is a letter written by a guy called Paul responding to a letter from the Corinthian church. We don't have what they had written to him and also some of the background conversations and context, but we have this letter that he's responded to, uh, to them. Somewhere along the line, a particular custom or, or, or practice has come up um, with regards to what women wear on their heads or, and or how they wear their hair. And then that relates to how he's um, talking about then, therefore, how men wear their hair, etc. in that context. The 21st, with, it, with the 21st century Western ears, we may hear one of a few things, maybe, oh my gosh, how chauvinistic, how backwards, how ridiculous is, is this? Um, uh, or maybe worse, maybe we think of, in, in reading this, we, our minds go to serious oppression of women in some religions and cultures um, and the seriousness of that in our world today. Um, Paul also talks about the, the head of the woman being man, and that's going to stir up certain feelings, depending on what you immediately assume head or headship means. One of the things we need to do when we come to passages like this is not make assumptions straight away and think, well, what do we, what do we understand that word actually means? But then think a bit deeper what it, it's actually meant to mean. Let's first recognise, uh, before we go any further, the serious issues that exist in our society, let alone the wider world, but in our culture, in our society today, when it comes to how women are treated. There's around issues of domestic violence, whether it be that or fair, fair treatment in the workplace. These are ongoing issues in our world, in our culture, in our backyard. Uh, in the wider world, just this weekend, we've been fighting sex trafficking uh, with a table tennis bat <laughs> through an event that raises funds and awareness. Um, in many places around the world, that men are men while women are commodities. And that is pure evil. It breaks the heart of God. And it's something that we have a responsibility to do something about. These issues, all of them, however big or small you may consider them to be, uh, stem, I believe, from uh, the human heart. 
They stem from the, the human heart and the issue of the human heart, the problem of the human heart. It's selfish, it's sinful nature. But that same human heart and all of its flaws, which is something common to all human beings, creates another problem. And that is that we often try to fix our issues using and motivated by that same selfish motivation and desire, if that makes sense. We, try, we go, well, there's all these issues created by the problem of the human heart, but then the way we try to address it is often motivated by, motivated by that same selfishness and taking things into our own hands. So to use a couple of very um, simplistic examples, we hate crime and injustice that we see on the nightly news maybe, um, problem created by sinful, selfish human beings. And so we fight it with retribution so often. It's like, well, eye for an eye. That's, that's kind of our approach. Uh, we hate poverty created by greed, problem of the human heart. And so often we seek as human beings to condemn and demonize the rich, which basically means those richer than us. And so we tend to tackle sin issues through a human, selfish, sinful lens. In an issue like this, in issues like this passage addresses, though, relationships between men and women is much more subtle. And Paul lived in an era where the elevation of men's status above women was far worse than it is today. It was a clearly and strongly male-dominated society. What we have to remember is that the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, the followers of Jesus were the most countercultural group of people on the planet at that time. The women had freedom to participate as the men did in all they did. They worshipped, they prayed, they led, as, as Brian so passionately highlighted a few weeks ago over and over again. Um, this was countercultural. This did not happen around them uh, very much at all. And at first glance, in this passage we read today, it seems... Like Paul's going soft on this. Like he's uncomfortable with this equality. And it's a loaded term, but it's an equality between men and women that they had. It's like he's going soft. That's not so. That's not what's happening. When it boils down to it, there's one major issue with how the women in particular, but also possibly the men, are living out, how they're living out this new freedom and equal standing with each other. And in many ways, it's no different to what happens today. It's, it's hard to see this in the passage, but when you, you dig into it, bottom line is they are seeking to diminish the differences, the distinctions between the sexes. They're trying to stay away from the sinful mistreatment of women, not by going, well, we need to do things God's way, but by trying to do things their way. Now, let me, let me explain and give you a bit of context of why, why this is. Exactly what the head covering custom was, we don't really know exactly. We don't know exactly what Paul's talking about, exactly what the women would wear on their heads or how they had to wear their hair or whatever that was. But... What is clear is that it was some kind of honouring of the fact that men are men and women are women. That's basically what it was about. Um, 
Now, I've spoken before in this series on 1 Corinthians. If you just join us for the first time today, we've been working through this letter um, by Paul to the Corinthian church. And I've spoken before about the fact that one issue going on in the Corinthian church is that some women who, who felt, this, this new, they, they felt that this newfound freedom in Christ uh, made them like the angels. They nick, nicknamed the eschatological women. They basically thought because they'd mixed a bit of their old religions with Christianity, they thought they'd achieved some sort of spiritual status that meant that they were like the angels now and that things like marriage were no longer their concern because that's an earthly thing and we're now kind of elevated past that. And now similarly with their new spirituality and status they've achieved, gender among the angels is a non-thing and so that's of no importance either now. And so basically... It's like the, the thinking was my freedom in Christ means this custom which relates to the honouring of God making men, men and women, women is beneath me. That's a, a very short summary and simply summary of what's kind of going on. Now, now you might say, okay, but Luke, but Luke, doesn't it go further than that? I mean, Paul says, like, man's the head of the woman as, as, as Christ is the head of the man. And, and Paul says, women is the glory of man, like, like man is the glory of Christ. I mean, come on, is this, what is he really trying to say here? Well, let's, let's dig into it a bit. First of all, what does head mean? It's tricky because Paul uses the word sometimes literally, like women have authority over their own heads, literally this part of the body and what you put on it and how you use your hair. And he uses the term uh, um you know, metaphorically, like uh, that, you know, Christ is the head of man. So Paul says in this passage that the, and he says in the passage, the woman, and he's talking here about the creation story, so Eve came from the man. He's pointing out there was an order. But the term authority in the Greek exousia is only used one time in the passage, and not when he says head, but when he's talking about woman's authority over her own head, literally choosing what she can do with her hair and whether she puts a covering on it. And so the, the question we need to, to, to actually grapple with is this, can there be, an, and again, English terms fail us here, but can there be an order, a kind of a, a one came first, and, and in a sense a distinction between men and women, without meaning there isn't equality. In other words, same value, same worth. Is it possible that there's difference and even a sort of a man was first, woman was, came from men? Is it possible that, that that exists in some way, in some form, and then that can affect and shape how we approach human relationships without then going, well, that by default means that men are of more value and worth than women? And I think that the answer is yes, that both of those things can coexist, that there is equal value, but there is difference between the sexes. A, a, um, a man ought not to... Now, now, this is the other thing that Paul says that you might have picked up. A man ought uh, not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, you might read that and go, whoa, 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 hang on a sec. So it's like, if man in relation to Christ, it, that's like woman is from man. Read it again. A man ought not to, uh, sorry, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the 
image and glory of man? Is it on the screen? No. But woman is the glory of man. Woman is not the image of man. Woman is not created in man's image to be just at the next tier down from man, but is created for man. Men and women are created for each other, but both are created in the image of God, their value, their purpose, their worth. And so Paul's very careful in his language, but we just kind of skip over it and think, oh, hang on a second, what is really being said there? Both are made in the image of God, but one is made for the other to complement, to partner with because they're different. Now, if you're still going, well, hang on a second, he's still saying man, man's first and, and woman's just for man. If, that's, if you're still uncomfortable with that, Paul says this, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of women. For as women came from man, so also man is born of women. But what? Everything comes from God. So what's he saying? I think part of it is our natural, selfish, broken way of trying to fix the issues caused by the fact that we are broken and sinful and different in our genders because that creates a tension. Well, how, how, do, how, do we, how do we work with that? But the way we try to address those issues is to diminish the differences rather, to address, rather than to address the selfish heart. What this passage, of course, should never be used for is advocating blanket policies like women shouldn't be CEOs or held or hold you know, positions of influence. It's a misapplication of, of passages like this. Or women should just bear children or anything else that seeks to raise men above women in terms of their worth and potential and value. But we, know, we do no good if we try to fix the issues created in this world by the human heart by hiding the differences between two sexes that God has created for one another. And the same can be applied to other um, differences between human beings, people who are wired differently, people who are, who are gifted differently. Now, you and I have to wrestle with exactly what that means when it comes to male, quote, headship, unquote. For example, in marriages, or even in church life. But here's... Here's, and, I, and again, I don't want to brush that aside, but here's what I think is the key point. And, I, and I'm going to quote directly from uh, one author who, who I think unpacks this wonderfully. Uh, Gordon Fee says this, Paul seems concerned to shift the problem from one of individual freedom to one of relational responsibility. What's he talking about? Well, it says there was an independent spirit in the community. And this is what Paul's really getting at. Now, note that he's had a pretty good go at the men in a previous chapter <laughs> in the way they were taking that independent spirit saying, well, we have freedom to do this, that, and the other, and say, no, no, you don't, not when it's going to the temple prostitutes or whatever else they were getting up to. So he's had a, go, a pretty good go at them. And we're going to see this even more Next week, this independent spirit, when he talks about the, the Lord's Supper and the way they're handling that. But what I find refreshing in this passage is that when you read um, up smart people who understand it far better than I do and who under, know the Greek and the context and all of that, this is a rare occasion, this passage, a rare occasion where Paul's not hugely passionate about the issue at hand. Other, other times, other passages, like on the Lord's Supper next week, he's like, now you lot listen up, you're acting, how you're acting goes blatantly against the gospel and it's disgraceful in light. And he's like really hard on it. In this, it's more gentle. 
Part of which is why, it, that's part of why it's hard to understand because he sort of just goes on to one thing for a while and comes back and then he throws in the thing about the angels there. It's like, what's that about? And it's a bit hard. But basically, he's not super, super like firm with them. He's just addressing a question. But the bottom line, and we'll keep seeing this in the coming weeks, is that he's saying, look, this ain't, just, this, this ain't about you. This isn't just about you. The freedom we have in Christ is to be used for the benefit and honoring and building up of each other. That's the bottom line of what he's saying in this passage. He makes the point not only um, on the honoring of one another, but also in relation to their relationship with the wider body of Christ. So verse 16, look, the other uh, basically says, if um, anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the church of God. Look, the other churches aren't squabbling about this. So please, for the sake of unity with them, put it to bed. It's not just about you, is essentially what he's saying. And, and as a bit of a side note, you know, one of the core values of, of this church, uh, just a recognition of the relationship with the wider body of Christ. It could be expressed this way. We're part of something bigger. It's not just about us. We're not the church of Jesus Christ on earth. Not us, not just here, this little church family. We are part of a far bigger family of disciples who are the church of Jesus Christ on earth and have much to learn from that wider family. Just as within this church family, we have much to learn from one another on an individual level. As I read this passage and consider what Paul's saying, my question for myself is, how is God challenging in me this same uh, independent spirit? Where my personal freedom is elevated above the the relational responsibility for others. Because that's what it's about, that relational responsibility for others. Now, clearly, we are not addressing the issue of whether women should or shouldn't wear head coverings and how they should wear their hair and whether men should have short hair and all of that kind of thing because it's, it's, it's a non-issue. It's not in our context. It's, 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 it's not of concern. But I find that I have to be really honest with myself and ask in the context that I am in, are my decisions and actions right now really born out of selflessness, or are they born out of selfishness? I'm very good, I don't know about you, but I'm very good at making a case for myself and arguing to myself that my decisions are pure and selfless and others and God motivated, but I'm finding that there are endless layers to my selfishness and self-centeredness that God is working on. The life of a disciple of Jesus one becoming more like Jesus, is ultimately about my own independent spirit being put to death daily so that his will, God's will, motivated by the eternal and practical good of others will be done in my life. God's will will be done in my life. I find that both really painful because it's a putting to death of something in me and I find it to be the most freeing thing in the universe when God releases me from that sin. But another, uh, when, when another layer of selfishness is identified in me, I put that to death, giving it to Jesus. It's freeing. I don't know what, um, what comes to mind f- for you, 
Uh, but I know that for myself, it's considering my true motivations when I'm a husband or a father. It's, it's going, well, what's really motivating my decisions, my actions as a, as a pastor? Maybe for you, it's in the workplace or with your friends group or, or in the life of the church or in your family, what, whatever it might be. There's something, maybe there's something niggling at you. And you realize today, I hope you realize today, you know what? That's my independent spirit kicking in. You thought it was motivated by selfless care for others, but it's actually what you want. Um, here's what I think, just to, to finish off this morning, what I think is probably the greatest lesson we, we all learn in our walk with Jesus. And that is that when we understand what he thinks about us, what God thinks about us, it dissolves the need to think about ourselves first. Um, on the screen, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I realized after I put that up, it's not actually a C.S. Lewis quote. It's a Rick Warren quote who was summarizing C.S. Lewis. Um, and, and after I realized this and got the full context, I thought, I need to share this with you. So this is C.S. Lewis. Um, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be he, he will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility, the person who's humble. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And so a, a summary that, that Rick Warren, not C.S. Lewis, has done is that humility is is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And what we know is that when we know that God thinks the world of us, that he even gave his son to die for you and for I, so we could come back into relationship with God. We just don't need to focus on ourselves anymore. All that's left to do is, is stop worrying about me because I'm loved, I'm whole, I'm perfect in God's eyes and that is all that matters. It's God's opinion. When we realize that, now I can just focus on others, the good of others. Whatever, whatever selfishness, whatever independent spirit, conceitedness is, is in you today, the answer is not to beat yourself up. It's to give it to Jesus and believe what he thinks of you. So that, so that the motivation to be self-focused begins to dissipate. Instead, we focus on Jesus. So we're going to sing now and just worship in response to God's word. Um, leave some space for God to speak. Leave some space for God to minister to us and for us to share our heart with him. Um, maybe you're wrestling with questions of well, what, what does some of this mean or, or um, 
but I pray that you would also be going, well, God, how do you want to do a work on my heart this morning? Where is that selfishness or that self-centeredness? Um, but what do you say about me, God? What is it that you believe about me so that I can just give what is not of you over to Jesus, that it would be nailed to the cross and that I would be free, that we would be free to live a life that pleases God by serving others. Thank you, Jesus, for your great example to us, that you lived this perfectly, but you also don't expect us to live it perfectly just by looking at you. You give us the Holy Spirit to be able to live this in a way that we become more and more like Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you would continue to work in our hearts this morning, even as we worship, pray, and sing. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus.